Amen. Well, hey, thank you all for being here today. Um, it's a good day already. Um, if you would, turn to Matthew chapter 28. Uh, we are primarily going to be in verses 18 uh, through the end of the chapter. However, uh, we're going to hit a few other passages today. Um, and so feel free to go where you want to. If you want to put a finger in First uh, Peter chapter 3, you could do that too. But I understand when I'm going to be in more than one passage, it gets a little tricky flipping. So I'm going to have the verses on the screen, and Matthew 28 is the main place we're going to be. Now, you all know that on first Sunday, we have been in this series on the doctrines of grace. Uh, we have talked about the gospel and then addressed key themes, key doctrines around it. So one of those themes, uh, well, I shouldn't say one of those themes. The primary thing we've been saying is that the gospel... Hey, Hannah, click on for me. I need you. So the gospel is that Jesus died to pay our sin debt and rose from the dead to give us new life. And we reiterated the clarity of that. But then we went through talking about the fallenness of mankind, that we are sinners, that we're not going to choose God unless he does a work to make us. Um, we went through the whole fact that our adoption in Christ is not merited. He didn't say, oh, there's that one's going to make a good Christian, so let's save that one. Um, it's based on his goodness, not on ours. We talked about how atonement is not universal. It's that it's particular to the believing, and so we better get the gospel out. Otherwise, if people don't repent and believe, they will not be saved. Um, we talked about regeneration, God's miracle of giving us new life, making us alive in Christ. And we talked about perseverance. And so my hope is that you've got that framework so that as we approach the topic of evangelism, you have an understanding that, hey, this is all God's work. He's the one who draws us. He's the one who elects us. He's the one who saves us. He's the one who regenerates us. He's the one who makes sure that we persevere to the end. And so I want to make sure I understand that, that I am entering into this study of evangelism knowing that God has got this. So today we're going to talk about making disciples. Um, and so with that, of course, comes the idea of evangelism. And anytime we bring up evangelism, most of us get a little bit nervous. Um, how many of you all, when you hear the topic of evangelism, you start asking questions? You ask questions like, uh, won't people get offended? Or what if I lose a friendship over this? Or am I even allowed to do this? There we go. Um, or another thing is like, what if it just gets awkward? Um, people tend to be afraid of evangelism. And a lot of us, when we think of evangelism, we think of like growing up, there would be like the guy on the street corner. We would think about getting tracks and like shoving them into somebody's hand and having a conversation um, or, or just kind of like street evangelism. And, and most of us kind of cringe at that. Let me just tell you, though, I want to tell you, make sure you understand this. Those guys are faithfully proclaiming the gospel. Might not be my favorite method, right? Let me just tell you, that guy with a bullhorn yelling that people are sinners and need Jesus, that guy is proclaiming the gospel. And if you are not proclaiming the gospel, let me just tell you, he's doing a better job than you are. Right? Now, I want to encourage you, because a lot of us, we see that and we're like, ah, I could never do that. Okay, that's, we'll see. First of all, it is still obeying God. But I want to get us to a place of understanding that the gospel presentations can be a part of our ongoing daily lives. So my hope is to get you joyful about evangelism today, that you're not afraid of it, 
And we're going to see a little bit more on that. So, Matthew 28, we're going to start in verse 18. Now, let's read. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, this is what is called the Great Commission passage. And many of us, when we've heard this passage preached, we started in verse 19. You guys used to hearing like a sermon on this that begins in verse 19. Well, we'll notice that verse 19 begins with, go therefore. And I know it's kind of a cliche, but it's true. Anytime you see a therefore in scripture, you're supposed to ask, what is the therefore, therefore? Why is this here? It is a logical transition word. So it means that whatever's happening in verse 19 related to disciple making is based on what Jesus just said in verse 18. What is it he says here? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. More on this in a second, but when we were going over this in family worship this week, and by the way, I like doing, in family worship, a lot of times I'll talk about what we're going to talk about this Sunday so my kids have a little bit of an understanding. We've talked about it already. You don't have to do that, but I, I like to. And so when I, what I did is when I asked about this, and I said, okay, so if Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, does that mean that Jesus is king over the president of the United States? And the kids say yes. And I'm like, is he, is he king over the governor? Well, yes. You know, is he king over mommy and daddy? Yes. Is he king over anybody else? Yes. And we're just clarifying this. And actually, a little funny side note. I said, is he king over the mayor? And one of the kids is like, wait a minute, mayors are real? Because like, so used to mayors being part of like, you know, fanciful stories that like, yeah, mayors are real. And Jesus is king over them. And I brought this up because this is important throughout history. It's always, or mostly always, been okay with tyrants or with other leaders that as long as you only revere Jesus as king in your heart, you are cool. Right? In fact, like right now, we can look at church history and see that, you know, Caesar was always okay. He was totally cool with Christians being Christians and loving Jesus and whatever. As long as once a year, they went to the pagan temple, dropped a pinch of incense down, and declared Caesar Lord. Just some lip service. He's like, I just want some lip service. But the Christians recognize, well, no, like our creed involves Jesus being Lord. And if I give even lip service to you because I'm scared of you, I'm actually, actually giving you fear, Caesar, that is all reserved only for God. And as such, I'm making Caesar an authority over God, and I should never do that. And so they refuse. And by the way, people don't understand this. Most of the Roman persecution was not because they were proclaiming that Jesus was Lord, not because they were proclaiming the gospel, although yes, but it was because that gospel involved a reality that Caesar is not king over everything. And it was a deposition of the idol of statism in the form of Caesar worship. And brothers and sisters, right now, we are facing very similar things. Uh, I forget our brother's name, but the guy in Colorado, the cake baker, you know, everybody was fine with him believing that homosexuality was a sin. And as long as he kept that in his heart, they were fine with that. 
But as soon as he said, no, I am not going to bake a cake for the purpose of honoring and affirming your homosexual union, because it would be a denial of the law of God, and I'm not going to do that. He is essentially saying, I will not give that pinch of incense to Caesar. And what this means is, Jesus is Lord not just over my heart, but he is Lord over the civil affairs of humans. And so the kingship of Jesus, just like he says here, goes beyond just my heart. Jesus is not just king over the church. He's king over everything and everyone. And some of you are like, what does this have to do with an evangelism sermon? Everything. Jesus is king, brothers and sisters. And he says that because I'm king, go and make disciples of all nations. So a little side note, this is not just something that Jesus said on a whim. It's not just some platitude. This is weaved into the whole of scripture. In fact, in Matthew 24, just a few chapters earlier, Jesus says this gospel of the kingdom, that is his kingdom, will be proclaimed to all nations. I'm sorry, it says throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. He even says that like, this is built into eschatology. That the gospel's got to get to all nations. By the way, whether you're pre-mill or post-mill, same thing is true. The gospel's got to get to all nations. We also talked about this last week in Daniel 7. It says that, And to him, this is to the Son of Man, that is to Jesus, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. You get this? that even the eschatology of the Old Testament is pointing forward to Jesus' kingdom must go everywhere. In Colossians, Paul talks about how he's head over the church. Colossians 2, it talks about how he's the head of all rule and authority. And I've cited several other passages here. The idea is that Jesus' kingship is built into this whole thing, brothers and sisters. It is, it is completely tied to the proclamation of the gospel. And so the phrase I use here is that evangelism is predicated on Christ's authority and kingship. I better get that down. And that's going to affect some things later. In fact, this shows up in Acts 5 when the apostles are challenged because they've been sharing the gospel and the chief priests and all of his cronies had said, hey, don't do this. Don't talk about Jesus. And a little side note, you have a religious authority there who is also built into the magisterial authority. People forget this, that like they worked in cahoots with the Roman rule to get things done. So this is, when they're saying don't do it, they have the authority of the state behind them. And what do we see here? Verse 29, it says, But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. In this situation, where the proclamation of the gospel was seeking to be inhibited by religious leaders in the pocket of the civil leaders, Peter and the other apostles said, we have to obey God rather than men. Because we're put in a situation where Jesus' authority trumps your authority. It always trumps your authority, but when you're going to go against him. So, key things here related to the gospel proclamation is that we must proclaim Christ as Savior and Lord. It's built into this. It's not just that you say a magic prayer and you're saved. It's that you repent and believe the gospel and he is your king now. Second, 
means his authority trumps anybody that would want to get in the way of this proclamation. Let's kind of put this in the back of our minds because it's answering some questions. But don't worry, at this point, probably a lot of us are like, you're either in the like, oh, this is uncomfortable because I'm going to get in trouble for sparing the gospel. Or you're like, yes, stick it to the man. Um, and, and okay, you know, I'll, I'll admit that this, the latter of those is a little bit more fun to me. Um, but, but let me just say, we're going to see that the ultimate motivation here goes even deeper than that. So let's keep on going. So Matthew 28, uh, we're going to pick up in 19, where Jesus says, Go therefore, again, based on his authority, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Notice, by the way, how much of the Old Testament stuff was talking about the gospel being proclaimed throughout the whole world, his kingdom being throughout the whole world, all nations, all peoples. By the way, all nations here, the Greek word is ethnos, and it means every people group. That not just every nation state, but I would argue that the, the ethnic groups within those This is why we talk about the 1040 window and getting to all the unreached people groups in the world. Every language, every group, we want to get somebody there and proclaim the gospel. Matthew 24, because that's that's when this whole thing finishes up in a good way. All right, so all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. I want to draw attention here to this word for disciple-making. The Greek word is, and I'm I'm bad with my Greek pronunciation, because even when I was really strong in my Greek and I was teaching Greek, I was reading it most of the time. So, um, mathe tuestate. Yeah, that's terrible, but that's the word. Um, Anyway, it is Strong's number 3100. A little side note, uh, get a Strong's concordance, highly recommend it, but the value of Strong's, I'm just a little bit of Bible study knowledge here, Um, Strong's has the Greek and Hebrew words numbered. And so you don't have to be a language expert. If you've got a Strong's concordance, you can usually look up whatever the word is in the original language and you can get a definition and it gives you a little bit more understanding. And so every now and then when I can, I'll give you the Strong's number. Handy tool. Handy kind of next thing to do in Bible study. Key thing here is it, it is a verb, which means there's action into it. I'm making disciples, right? I'm going to read the definition here from Net Bible. It says, To be a disciple of one, to follow his precepts and instructions, to make a disciple, to teach and instruct. Built into this idea of discipleship is knowledge transfer, practice transfer, and historically there is this very clear understanding of following. Like, in, I mean, in the first century, this would have been actually physically following after. But the idea was like, I am following along in the practices of. I am imitating this person and learning from him. And so discipleship has built into it this idea that I am turning from one thing to turn and follow Christ. And this is why I want to draw special attention. This is why we have to specifically proclaim the gospel as the beginning of disciple making, right? That making disciples begins with the presentation of the gospel and the call to repent and believe. Oh, we have two key words here that we bring bring in, and that is repentance and faith. Now, I recognize recognize that with repentance and faith, um, we don't don't talk about that enough in, in evangelism. But here's the thing. If I am to follow Jesus, it means I'm turning from whatever it was that I was engaged in before. So repentance, because discipleship inherently involves turning away from 
following the course of this world. Ephesians 2.2 2 talks about following the course of this world, being dead in your trespasses and sins, and just kind of going along with the flow of culture. By the way, does that sound really familiar? I think I've said a few weeks ago, if you are just kind of going along with whatever is popular in the world, you are probably dead in your trespasses and sins. The spiritually dead go along with what is sinful and wicked and normal in the world. It is those who are alive that turn from that and follow Jesus. So repentance and second, faith, because our trust is in Christ's atoning death and resurrection. So when I am calling people to follow Jesus, when I'm making disciples, I am calling them to repentance and faith. Turn from the old, turn towards Christ, believe in his atoning work. So our effort in evangelism should begin with proclaiming the gospel clearly and calling them to repentance and faith. Everybody with me? We can get back into some of this. So um, so what do we say is the gospel? I know I'm reiterating this, but it is kind of important that Jesus died to pay your sin debt and rose from the dead to give you new life. That's it. The gospel is not that Jesus loves you. That's built, I mean, it's built in. I mean, the gospel shows that he loves us, but just that he loves us, that's not the good news, right? That's kind of like me saying like, hey, your dad loves you when you're, when you're out on the street in the cold. Well, the, my, that my dad loves me doesn't fix it. I'm still out in the cold, shivering and homeless. When I say, your dad loves you, and he's paid for everything he ever did wrong, and he's welcoming you back into the house, now that's good news, right? So it is with the gospel, brothers and sisters, atonement in Christ's death and resurrection. That's the good news. There's all kinds of things we communicate around it for clarity. Gospel is Christ's death and resurrection. Cool? So here's the thing. So as we talk about this, we're talking about, okay, I've got to proclaim the gospel clearly. I've got to call people to repentance to faith. This is where kind of people clam up a little bit and say like, oh, because you know that proclaiming the gospel means saying, hey, friend, you're a wretched sinner. And God's wrath is going to be poured out on you and you will burn in eternity forever unless you repent and believe. That's not exactly like a sunshiny thing to bring up, you know, at dinner. It's, it's a little bit hard. So a lot of us acknowledge it's an uncomfortable thing to bring up many times. So what I want to do is draw some attention. I'm getting into some practical things here to the fact that evangelism is the natural result of loving and honoring Christ as Lord. And what I'm going to try to communicate here is if, in light of Matthew 28:18, if I first begin by myself honoring Christ as Lord, I will not be able to help but invite others to do the same thing through the proclamation of the gospel. So, a um, couple of key passages we're going to address here. We're going to jump around just a little bit because I'm trying to give you a picture of what happened in the first century and what the apostles were doing. In Acts chapter 4, verse 18, Peter here is, and this is happening before Acts chapter 5, not that you couldn't have figured that out, but before they get you know, thrown in jail over this, it says, So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. Which, by the way, is itself a smack in the face. Whether it's right for me to listen to you or listen to God, you be the judge of that. Which, of course, he's saying, like, of course we're going to listen to God. But notice this in verse 20. He says, For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. You understand, what Peter is saying is, we can't not do this. It's similar to what we see in the prophet Jeremiah 
when he was persecuted, and yet it says that the burning of the word of God in him was too strong for him to turn away from it. The idea is that what we were seeing in the first century apostles is they're like, guys, I just can't not talk about this. I'm so overwhelmed with the good news. I love God so much. He is in charge of me so much. I can't not do this. And here, in the face of persecution, they couldn't not proclaim the gospel. Similarly, we see, we see in Romans 1.16, when Paul's writing about this, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. He's saying, like, I'm just not ashamed of it, guys. He knows that it's unpopular. He knows, like, think about Paul was beaten and shipwrecked and hated and maligned and all these other things. He's like, not ashamed, because it's the power of God for salvation. He knew the value and power, and he was so overwhelmed by the good news of the gospel that it didn't matter that everybody hated it. He was going to proclaim it because it was true and it was wonderful. I want to draw attention. Both of these brothers, we have Peter and Paul, both show that they're like, we just can't not do this. Now I want to give you a little bit of attention in 1 Peter 3, and then again I'll be in Colossians 4, to show how Peter first and then Paul kind of gave us some methodology about this. So we're seeing in Acts 4 and 5, and of course in Romans 1, we see where these guys are exhibiting this kind of behavior, but I'm like, I want that. How can I have that? So here we see 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. He says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. If I'm to summarize this passage here, three things pop up. First of all, Peter calls us to revere Christ in our hearts. There's an idea of I am acknowledging him as Lord deep down. I'm honoring him, I'm loving him, and there's an overflow that's coming with it. Second, I'm supposed to provide a reason for the hope. The implication there is the hope is the gospel. I better be proclaiming the hope. But even says, make sure you have a means to give a reason for it. And third, he gives us a, a, a tool for the manner. He says, do it with gentleness and respect. That there is a winsomeness built into this. And I don't know about you guys, have you guys ever had somebody that was just gifted at giving you bad news in such a way that you were thankful for it? Um, or maybe the kind of person who is so you know, gregarious that when they ask you for a favor, you just feel great about doing it for them? My neighbor lovingly accused me of this the other day because I'm always like, hey, can I borrow your power washer? Can I do this? And I'm like, you know, and he's like, I don't know how you do it, Dan, but like, he's like, I just want to do this for you. And I'm like, thanks, Bob, you're great. Um, And I'm like, I'm not just trying to get free stuff out of you, but thank you. And um, it's funny, that same brother, not brother yet, when I share the gospel with him, I weave it in to everything. And I'm not, hopefully I'm not tooting my own horn. I'm just saying that like, if you are Doing things with gentleness and respect, there is a winsomeness that allows you to say, hey, you, you're a sinner. You're facing God's wrath. And as hard and punch you in the face as that is, we are commanded, brothers and sisters, commanded to do it with gentleness and respect. You should never soft sell the truth of it, but you can say it with gentleness and respect. And Peter has commanded it. The next thing, let's look very quickly. I promise I'm going to move fast here. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. 
Paul is writing to the church at Colossae, and he's giving similar instruction that seems to harmonize very well with what Peter says. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Interesting, Paul is giving a very similar set of instructions as Peter did. Except what Paul is saying is first, be thankful, faithful, and watchful in prayer. Watchful in prayer, by the way, is a spiritual warfare type of language and not in the kind of kooky where we see a demon behind every rock, but in the sense of I am engaging in spiritual battle because I am proclaiming the gospel. This watchfulness seems to indicate that I'm paying attention to what needs to be prayed for. As a watchman on the wall would watch for the enemy and would let everybody know as he would say, hey, watch out, we got people over here. So it is in our watchfulness in prayer, I should be praying for my neighbor who does not know the Lord, for John's friend that he's sharing the gospel with, um, for the faithful in Christ that are being persecuted, for my brothers and sisters who are discouraged. I am to be faithful, watchful, and thankful in prayer. Second, here, Paul, the apostle Paul is asking this guy who has shared the gospel with so many people, he is asking that there would be opportunities for the gospel. He's like, would you guys pray that God would open up doors? The implication here is that God in his sovereignty from the whole of eternity has had a plan that certain people would come into your life at the right time for you to share the gospel. And so Paul is saying, like, pray that I would get those opportunities. Pray that God would open the door for me to be able to share the gospel. It's interesting to me that even this great apostle who shared the gospel so much, he was saying, I know that God has to open that door. Pray that I would have the opening. Then he says, pray that it would be preached clearly. Notice he doesn't say, pray that I would have a really interesting intro to my sermon so that everybody would want to listen. He doesn't say, pray that my jokes would land. He doesn't say, you know, pray that, you know, of course he wouldn't do this, but pray that my sermon bumper video would be really snazzy and flashy so that people listen. Now what he says is, pray that I would proclaim the gospel clearly. And I wonder, because here again, it's Paul. Think of the things Paul writes in his letters. We just finished a study of uh, 1 and 2 Corinthians. And I don't know of anybody that's ever smacked somebody around through letters like Paul. Right? And so Paul it seems to have no trouble saying things that are direct and even harsh. And yet he's like, guys, would you pray that I just say this clearly? And I wonder if, I don't know if you've ever been here, where you're sharing the gospel... And let me just tell you, you know that it hurts to say you are a sinner and God's wrath will be poured out on you. And it's so easy to soft sell it. It's so easy to be like, ah, you know, you're not as bad as some, we love you. Or when somebody comes around and says, well, I see some of this other interesting stuff in other religions and maybe, and it's so easy to give up to make it sound palatable to a sinner. Brothers, It's not going to be, and sisters, the gospel is not going to be palatable to a sinner. They're just not going to like it. They're going to hate it until God does something in them. So Paul is saying, pray that I would say it clearly. Uh, He doesn't give an indication of soft selling, but he seems like, just pray that I get it out clearly. 
that whatever else I do, I don't mess it up, and I make sure that it's the right thing. And then he says, and then he gives instruction. After all this prayer related to gospel presentation, he says, be wise toward outsiders using the best use of time. How interesting. I'm not, brothers, it's not wrong to talk about football. It's not wrong to talk about what you saw on TV and the weather and all that kind of stuff. But he, or guns. Not bad to talk about that. That was my wife was like, <clears throat> guns, because she knows I talk about that with a lot of people. Um, that's going to be recorded and on our podcast. That's all right. Anyway, um, but I better, I better make sure that I am getting the gospel in there, right? If I never get the gospel out, I'm not making the best use of the time. If I have friends that know me and have not heard the gospel out of my lips, I will just tell you it means I'm not making best use of the time if that happens. So I will encourage you. You know, I, I heard somebody say one time that, like, you know, it's going to take a miracle for them to believe anyway. So, like, why would I spend months and weeks soft-selling things so that I can maybe sort of sneak the gospel in? Make it natural. Be, don't just, I mean, maybe you should just dump, dump it right in. But, like, you can make it natural in a conversation. But, man, why would you wait to share the gospel? It's going to take a miracle anyway. Make the best use of the time. I'm thinking right now, I have a friend who's a non-believer, and I share the gospel just about every time we get together. And not because I'm just there only to do that, although kind of. Um, but it comes up, and I, I will know every time he will talk about something that is an effect of sin in his life. Either his own sin or because of Adam's sin. Not Adam, of course, sin, but Adam, you know, the first man's sin. Um, maybe it's because of Adam's sin. I don't know. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> also in the podcast. Um so when I, and, and I, and I'll be able to say, you know what, brother, that is the effect of sin. And man, the only hope to get out of that is Jesus' death and resurrection. I'll weave the gospel in, and it'll be a couple of seconds. It doesn't take me long. And so then he's gotten to where he'll bring something up, and he's like, oh, what do you have to say about that? And I'm like, Hank, you know what I'm going to say. You know exactly what I'm going to say. I'm going to say repent and believe the gospel. And there's so many ways, and here's what's interesting. Speaking to Peter's hope that is within you, how many times he said, Man, how is it that you are joyful? And I'm like, man, it's the joy of the Lord. He's like, so many things go wrong for me. And I'm like, well, things go wrong for me too, but I know Romans 8, it's going to be working out for my good. And he's like, well, where can I have that? And I'm like, you got to repent and believe the gospel, man. Because I actually told him one time, I think I mentioned this in a sermon, I'm like, there is no promise for you who does not love God to have all this work together. In fact, just the opposite. It's probably going to work out real bad for you. Repent and believe the gospel. Here's the thing, he's still my friend. Still keeps talking to me because I do it with gentleness and respect, right? Seasoned with salt, as we're going to say. In fact, let me go to this next thing. We don't have much longer in case you all are like, it's 12.01, Dan. You've passed the point of no return. Don't worry. Um, he says this, Paul, writing very similar. Notice the similarity to Peter. He says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I love this season with salt. That like, salt makes things taste better. My graciousness, my kindness, my gentility does not mean I am softening. You better not soften the gospel message. But man, that my tone of voice, my looking in the eye and say, brother, I don't want you to die and go to hell. Gracious and seasoned with salt. 
So all that said, I recognize we're going on, we're hitting some key points related to evangelism, and all of this is a subset of the first couple of words of verse 19. If you're worried I'm going to take this amount of time to preach the rest of uh, the chapter, please don't worry. Uh, we're only going to be a few more minutes. But I do want to draw attention to something that very few of us acknowledge or know about. And it is what Calvin called the census divinitatis. Anybody ever heard this? Second time I've gotten Latin into a sermon in a long time. Um, census divinitatis. It is the Latin phrase that Calvin used to refer to what we see in Romans 1. Notice in Romans 1, it talks about, and we're not going to read all through Romans 1. Romans 1, it talks about how everyone knows that God is real. The God of Scripture is real. But it says in Romans 1 that the, the unbelieving suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. And the language here is that everybody knows that not just a generic God, but they know deep down that the triune God of Scripture is real and they're responsible to him. And because it terrifies them, they work really hard in their unrighteousness to suppress this truth. And so what, uh, what we see is this idea of this sense of God is in every person. For crying out loud, every human is created in the image of God. You cannot deny God's existence without denying your own being in some way, because your being is designed to reflect God's existence. There's so many, and not to mention the wonder and beauty of the world, all these things that God has made in such great order continue to testify, and a little side note seem to just pull on that sense of the divine, that there's something that's happening. And this is why we have so many times we're like, Scientists just kind of throw up their hands and say, I can't deny that this is amazing, right? Little side note, I always like to do this, bring in my presuppositional apologetics. I love with like, no matter how brilliant the scientist is, I'm like, you know, you presuppose a world of order that would not make sense had God not created it. So you can't at once say that it's a big, irrational mess and then put so much effort into knowing exactly how detailed and beautiful it all is. And they get stuck kind of a beautiful thing. And I have seen uh, less intelligent people be able to get a brilliant philosopher, atheist, scientist stuck because he can't account for the fact that his own knowledge exists. Man. Anyway, more on that later. So Romans 1.21 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Let me just think about this. I'm going to get ahead of myself a little bit. So they have a sense of God in them that they're continually working to suppress. It is re They're reminded of it as they see the wonder of the world. Now I'm coming along and I'm proclaiming the gospel that affirms this truth. And we see Peter um, in Acts, I think we skipped over it, in Acts 4 or 5, where he says, And the Holy Spirit testifies with us also. So they have their own sense of the divine that they're suppressing. They have the wonder of the beautiful universe we have the gospel being proclaimed by us. We have the word of God built into that. And then we have the Holy Spirit. Let me just tell you, if you are worried when you are sharing the gospel with someone that the whole world is against you, let me just affirm, everything here is going for you except their own sin nature. The Holy Spirit's confirming. You're sharing the gospel. In themselves, it's there. It is a lot easier to tell someone something that deep down they know. They are just working hard to deny. Anyway, we're on that in a second. Um, we're finishing out here. So um, Romans 14 or Romans 10, 14 through 17 says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? 
And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear on without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what, uh, what he has heard from us? Verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Brothers, we will not see faith grow in the lost unless it is first planted there. So, as we're finishing out here, I want to give you just very quick practical things on what we need to do for proclaiming the gospel. First of all, proclaim the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of the good news that you are saved by grace through faith, something that should be happening daily. Brothers and sisters, we sin daily, so we should remind ourselves of the gospel daily. Praise God. Preach the gospel to yourself. Second, to your family. Uh, Lead family worship. Uh, I'm just going to highly recommend, whether it's 10 minutes around the table where you read a verse, maybe do a catechism, sing a hymn, it doesn't have to be much, but preach the gospel to your children. Sit around the dinner table, or do it right before bed, or do it at breakfast, but make it a near daily practice, if not daily, to do family worship and proclaim the gospel. So yourself, your family. Third, when we come together, we should be proclaiming the gospel to one another. This is why we have built into our practice for someone to share the gospel every time we gather together. And we normally do it in conjunction with communion, so we're remembering why we're taking communion. But notice what's happening. Preaching the gospel to myself, my family, my church. And last, I'm preaching the gospel to the lost. I should be weaving it into my life in such a way that it is being proclaimed. I should be supporting missions. I should maybe pray about going on the mission field. And I should be sharing the gospel to everyone I am given the privilege and open door to share it with. So, with that, remember Paul told us to pray. Uh, So some things I recommend praying. This is just for practicality. Luke 10, Jesus says to pray for laborers for the harvest. So I pray for more people to come and evangelize. Uh, In Acts 1, 8, he says that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and then you will be my witnesses. I pray for just the filling of the Holy Spirit that God would work through us. Um, in Colossians 4, we already said, Paul says to pray for opportunities for the gospel. And then in John 6:44, Jesus says, nobody's going to come to me unless the Father draws them. So I pray for God to draw people to Jesus. Um, I nerd out on this, but I actually set my clock to 10.02, 108, 403, and 6.44 to remind myself to pray for these things. You don't have to do it, but if you want a way to remember to pray, that's how I do it. Um, all that said, everybody with us, we're going to finish this out. I know I've preached longer than normal, and you all are very gracious to listen to me. Um, finishing out here, he says, so we're to make disciples of all nations. And then he says, baptizing them in the, fa- the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. So once someone has repented, that is the beginning of the disciple-making process. I should baptize them, as you guys did with the sister just, was it two weeks ago? Two weeks ago. Praise God, man. Um, new sister in Christ got baptized by the Avon group. Um, Second, I am to continue in teaching them. I should be on an ongoing basis. And by the way, this is what we do. Our our discipleship groups get together. We teach each other the word and we remind each other of the truth. In discipleship, when a brother is kind of maybe not doing things exactly right, and I kind of lean in and say, hey, man, you know, the word says do this. And sometimes people are doing that with me. where They're like, hey, Dan, you know, the word says to do this. And I'm like, oh, that we're instructing on an ongoing basis. And this goes on for the whole of our lives. This is why we gather together and remind ourselves. This is why we teach the word of God. This is discipleship is happening right here. Right? We are making disciples right now because we're continuing the disciple-making work. Cool? All right, finishing out this then. In the last half of verse 20, Jesus says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
that in this disciple-making work, and of course we have focused on the evangelism part of this, in this disciple-making work, Jesus is present always. I'm reminded of in Luke 10, when Jesus sends out the disciples, and what does he say? He says, I am sending you out as lambs among wolves. And there are those who have falsely thought that, oh, two lambs can defend themselves against wolves. No, you can't. Two lambs to a wolf means lunch and dinner. There is no strength that a lamb can bring out. But Jesus, the Lion of Judah, says, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let me just tell you, wolves are afraid of lions. The king who has declared his kingship and commissioned us to make disciples says, I am with you always to the end of the age. That means Jesus is with our brothers in Canada at this very time while the RCMP either arrests or finds them today. And nothing is happening to them that is outside the will and plan of God as they proclaim this gospel today. For crying out loud, They're probably choosing to emphasize the gospel all the more because they know that there are heathen servants of Caesar there to hear the gospel. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is with us all the way to the end. All right, so I'm going to close this in prayer for a second, but I'm going to give you some recommended reading because I recognize I covered way too much ground today. I almost feel like I should have pared this down. Um, But I want to give you some reading recommendations. First of all, if you read nothing else on the topic of of evangelism, I recommend Vodi Bauckham's expository apologetics. It is a relatively quick read. It will equip you to answer just about anything in apologetics and evangelism. Highly recommend it. If you don't read anything else, read that book. It's not that expensive. It's a relatively simple read. You you should read it. Click on just a couple of more so we can see those books in there. There we go. Uh, Second, um, I recommend the book Tactics by Gregory Kokel. It gets into this, how to just make it conversational. Um, And he reminds, you guys remember Columbo? Anybody remember Columbo? And he talks about the Colombo tactic in evangelism and apologetics where you just kind of ask these questions. And you're like, wait, just one more thing. And you can be so winsome in that. And it, it, it's a great way. Um, third, there's a book by this guy, Daniel Sams. It's not that great. But if you, in seriousness, if you need a book to give you kind of like, what do I do now that somebody's come to Christ? What do I do with them? Gives you a really practical, like, here's, and you, you could just get the outline and read those scriptures. That's fine. You don't need the book. But I do recommend the book, and you can get it from me for cheap if you want. Um, the other thing, if you're ready to go, like, big brain style, and you're like, I'm going to really get into, like, the, the deep stuff, Covenantal Apologetics by Scott Oliphant. Um, really great book um, on evangelism and apologetics. Highly recommend it. Last thing here, I would recommend our apologetics course in Underground Seminary. Keep in mind, if you attend our church, you get Underground Seminary for free. Just send me an email. I'll get you a link. Um, Our apologetics course probably takes maybe two or three hours to go through all the videos. And we go through all kinds of stuff in apologetics that gets you well-equipped. Highly recommend it. Um, It's kind of a, a toolbox of evangelism and apologetics. Great class. Several other books I can recommend, especially The Soul Winner by Charles Spurgeon, uh, The Gospel and Personal Evangelism by Mark Dever. Uh, All that said, I think we're in good shape. Thank you guys for hanging on through a very long sermon. So here's what I'd like to do.